Trojan fans. It's time for another installment of the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We give you the inside scoop on everything about USC football recruiting from the experts who know what they're talking about. Which players have an offer, which ones don't, who the coaches like, and who our experts like. And now, here are your co-hosts for the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher Ryan Abraham and uscfootball.com national recruiting analyst and the number one USC recruiting expert on the planet Gerard Martinez. Hey Trojan fans welcome to the Trojan Blast recruiting podcast you can hear by our new intro uh, thanks to our our buddy Matt on the Peristyle for recording that one for us he actually did both uh, the Trojan Blast and Peristyle podcast intros and Gerard what do you think of that intro they they, uh, puppy up a little bit. They're awesome. Um, what planet is he talking about, though? Is he talking about this planet or maybe Mars, possibly? Pluto? I could be number one on Pluto. I don't know if Pluto's still considered a planet anymore. It they is kind not. of go back and forth on that. Yeah, it's not, but you'd still be number one there, too. So, uh, yeah. Maybe we'll play with that a little bit, but uh, yeah, certainly. Um, we, we think of you in higher, the highest regard, Gerard, because of the way you cover USC football recruiting. I definitely would put up your skills next to anyone else's as far as uh, coverage goes on USC football recruiting. Well, the problem is now people are going to think that that's like uh, written into my contract, that the brand says that I need to be called and introduced everywhere I go as the number one recruiting guy on the planet for USC. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. No, that you're a very humble and uh, very humble person when it comes to this. And you do a great job. So we're very happy to have you on the team and wanted to do a post-signing day podcast. We got to do one right before signing day. And uh, one of the things that you told people was that you kind of expected that USC was going to go four for four and and get the four guys that were targeted on signing day, and that's exactly what ended up happening. Yeah, just uh, we were optimistic. You know, you never really know what's going to happen towards the end, and um, it was definitely close with uh, one guy specifically, and that was Juju Smith. I think, you know, some people were very uh, wary of the Oregon talk and thought maybe that was just drummed up for drama, but, um, you know, even in hindsight and, talking to uh, some of the staff and, you know, talking to people that are close to Juju and Juju himself, uh, he was definitely close to thinking about going to Oregon. Um, the main thing, I think, with Oregon was just the depth at safety was better. He felt like he had a clearer path to playing early at Oregon, and Oregon definitely got in his head about that with USC. You've got Sue Cravens. Um, you've got Leon McCoy the third. Uh, you still got Josh Shaw there who could play safety, could play corner, just depending on really how this class comes in, is able to kind of support the corner depth. Uh, so you've got some talent there for USC, and I think that was getting in his head a little bit. And really it came down to whether Juju felt like he could contribute early, maybe playing offense at USC. And we've talked all along, you know, USC is going to play him on offense first as a wide receiver. And then, you know, if he develops – Later on, gets a little bigger and feels like there's you know, more opportunity maybe to play defense, then maybe he goes and jumps over on defense. We feel like he projects the best as a safety down the line. I think that's where his ceiling is the highest. Um, all right. Well, so that, that was the one kind of player for the group that uh, you actually had him as the lowest percentage, and I thought he would be a little bit higher than Adore Jackson. And I was actually at – uh, Adore Jackson's announcement. I was at uh, Damian Mama's announcement. It seemed like Damian Mama was going to pick USC. I really didn't know until Adore, I mean, he pulled out like a, a Sarah High School hat. He pulled out a cleat. Nothing really had USC colors in it. And he was wearing all black, so there wasn't a whole lot to give away there. And then pulled out that USC hat. And he seemed about as happy as you could possibly be. Like that, that he probably knew for a while <laughs> that he wanted to go to USC. But what did you think about how that all went down? Yeah, I, I do think that Adore knew where he wanted to go for probably a month or so. I think that, you know, when Lane Kiffin was coached, he had told several people kind of behind the scenes he was not interested in USC. Um, he just didn't get the feel for the program. I think obviously at that point the direction of the program was uh, not a positive one. And so once Ed Erdron came in as interim coach, that's when he kind of started to take another look at USC and started to get interested in, in USC. The main thing, I think, throughout the process was that he had a really good relationship with T. Martin. He really liked T. Martin, and with that relationship and with his relationship with guys like Marquise Lee and several other players on the team, he was at USC so much. And so that was the one thing that we had talked about throughout the process, and I had said it time and time again, and I will stand on this one premise. 
actions speak louder than words in recruiting. And kids say a lot of things, but when a kid is down at the school, and we're talking about probably two dozen times for unofficial visits at USC, Dory Jackson just became very familiar and very comfortable around the coaches, around USC, and obviously when you had the turnover of the coaching staff, then that was on Coach Sarkeesian and the guys coming down from Washington who had obviously been recruiting him but not been really at the forefront of his recruitment to be able to make him feel at ease and make him feel like they had a good plan for him and that the offense, the defense, the totality of his recruitment, that they were going to have good chemistry together. And so he had that built-in relationship with T. Martin, and then the other coaches were able to really kind of close the deal on, hey, this is the direction we're going now, this is what's changed, and this is what's so much better. I don't think he was – you know, headed USC from the beginning. Um, I think it was definitely the, the coaching change uh, helped in his recruitment a lot. Uh, but I think towards the end, I think the last few weeks, USC was definitely at the forefront. Tennessee was there, and once Tennessee was eliminated, I think that was kind of going to be, all right, this kid's going to go where he wants to go. And where he wants to go is where he's the most comfortable, and I think that was USC. Okay, uh, that makes sense. And, you know, you mentioned the the UCLA stuff a little bit, and uh, I, I mean, I wanted to know, I, the, what I said on the podcast was, the only thing that would shock me is if any of those signing day guys end up picking UCLA, and, you know, there there was this Bruin Revolution thing going on, I think that's what, you know, there, there was a lot of talk on the Peristyle, people were kind of worried about what was going on with Jim Mora, and I kind of thought that this would change a little bit when Rick Neuheisel had taken over, certainly with USC under sanctions, that they, they would affect things, but it seems to me, Gerard, that Still, if you're looking at the the major five-star players that are in Southern California that typically would go to USC, I think for UCLA to kind of take over things, they have to change that and make it so the Adore Jacksons are really considering, and not just considering, but actually end up at UCLA or the Juju Smiths and things like that. Now, I know like Eddie Vanderdoes last year ended up going to USC. He wasn't really a, he's not like a Southern California guy, and he ended up committing to Notre Dame first, and that was a kind of a weird deal. And the year before, uh, Ellis McCarthy, or the year before that, or whatever. But it just, you know, typically you don't see those kind of five-star players end up ending up in Westwood. I, I think UCLA's gained some momentum. Do you see them be able to kind of get over the top and, and getting those guys at some point? Or is Steve Sarkeesian the guy that can come in and kind of keep that door shut? Well, it's consistency. And UCLA has beaten USC two years in a row now. And that will help kind of start to turn the tide. I think UCLA and probably UCLA staff really felt like it should have happened maybe already. I think this past recruiting class, they felt, uh, even though they only got to the Sun Bowl, and I think maybe, you know, that kind of puts into perspective a little bit. Maybe in Westwood, that was this big monumental thing for them that, okay, we we turned it around. You know, we beat Virginia Tech in the Sun Bowl. USC lost in the Sun Bowl last year, so look at where we are, top of the mountain. But in the grand scheme of things, I think the perspective on that was like, okay, that's not that big a deal. Obviously, when you're talking about USC and competing against USC, which, you know, is coming away from a point where they were considered a dynasty, uh, winning multiple national championships it pales in comparison. So there's a lot more work that has to be done with UCLA. I don't think it's out of reach that they can start getting in the heads of more local players and be able to be in it for more local players. I think the biggest mistake that UCLA made, at least from my perspective, which is an outside perspective, is that they got too enamored with what their brand was nationally. And and I think that, again, goes back to, okay, you won the Sun Bowl, pat on the back, but that's certainly not BCS level type competition. You're certainly not in the mix with the schools that are considered BCS uh, contenders year in and year out. And in order to be that brand nationally, that's really where you got to put yourself. You got to, you got to beat Oregon. You got to beat Stanford. You got to beat more than just USC when USC is down with sanctions and playing some of the worst ball that they played in the last, I don't know, decade. So from that standpoint, I, I think UCLA if they can continue to be at USC, yeah, definitely. Those, those local kids are going to start to look at them as a viable competitor. But they always have to overcome the inherent UCLA is the basketball school, USC is the football school. And that is just decades upon decades of tradition and winning that has been instilled. That's just kind of ingrained in, I think, a lot of the local players' heads. And it's not just two years. It's not just 
five years. I mean, UCLA put a winning streak on USC, and people started to talk about it being, hey, this is a UCLA football town. But that wasn't the majority of the opinion. Even then, when you had Paul Hackett and, and you had uh, some, some you know, bad football by USC, where UCLA was kind of at their top and, and trying to compete for consecutive Rose Bowls. Um, so I think that is another kind of big hurdle that Jamal is trying to change the culture. And, and with changing the culture, you have to change that kind of image and that kind of inherent thought process from all the recruits. And certainly this past, you know, recruiting class, yeah, it was really not looking good for UCLA in terms of the local perspective of the top players. They didn't get an official visit from any of those top guys. I think you put together some statistic there in the war room. Was there two of the top ten players in California officially visited UCLA? Only one. I mean, you're not even getting an officially visit. You're not going to even get an official visit from a top player. You're you're really not in contention, maybe the way that you you would like to think you are. Yeah, it was only actually one of the top uh, top ten players in California officially visited UCLA. So, yeah, not not but not great. <laughs> um, that's terrible. Yeah, that's yeah. that's absolutely. Yeah, you, you and you can talk about all the hats that you had on the tables and how much you know closer you were with this kid and that kid. But at the end of the day, if kids are not officially visiting your school, then I think how serious they are looking at that school is very debatable. Okay. Um, we wanted to get to some questions, if that's okay with you, Gerard. We have some. That's okay with me. Yeah, some some you know signing day ones, and and then we'll have some like looking ahead ones. Uh, let's do, we'll do some of the Adore Jackson questions first. We, uh, Percy Tillman wants to know, do you guys see a little prime time? He's talking about Deion Sanders personality in Adore Jackson. That's who I thought of after seeing his commitment and, and Gerard just Adore Jackson got to work with prime time at the, uh, Under Armour All American Bowl practices down there in Orlando. I got to see those guys kind of work together. So if any of that rubbed off on him, it might've been from the Under Armour practice. No, I think I think Adori had some of that in him already. <laughs> I think um, you know, prime time today is definitely different than the prime time that actually played with the Atlanta Falcons and you know earlier on in his college career with Florida State. I think this version of prime time is probably a lot more humble and probably sees things in a different light than maybe the guy that you know was running around and talking trash and doing all the crazy you know things that he was doing. Uh, back when he was a player, there's there's a little bit of that with Sidori, definitely. I think he has a a, a shine for uh, you know flair for the dramatic to some extent. I mean, you saw that not necessarily in his recruitment because I think his recruitment was actually very kind of low key in a lot of ways. Um, there was a lot of people involved in his recruitment, and obviously when you've got a kid that's from East St. Louis and he's been living out here for the past three years, and his parents are still in East St. Louis. That uh, that circle is not very small for him. All of a sudden, that circle becomes a little bigger. You've got coaches that he stayed with. You've got you know his sister there that he was living with, his brother-in-law. You have all these different moving parts to his recruitment. And even with that said, I think it was pretty low-key. He never really did anything, said anything. There was no commitment that was made you know, to another school, and then he backed out of that, and then a week later he's committed to another school, and then he's officially visiting another school. I mean, we've seen drama with the recruiting process covering USC. We've seen the Michael Goodsons, okay? We've seen <laughs> the Eddie Vanderdoses who's you know, committed to USC and all of a sudden you know, signs with Notre Dame and then ends up at UCLA. There's a lot of those kind of things that have happened uh, with multiple commitments and a lot of uh, drama drummed up. I think the only real dramatic part was when he actually made his announcement. And at that point, being one of the final five-star big-time guys out there, I think he kind of deserved some of that. I think there was some of that, you know, dramatic and, and, and flair that, you know, some people kind of expected and wanted. If he would have just sat there and said, I'm going to USC, put his hat on, then that would have been it. I don't know. Maybe people would kind of been let down and disappointed a little bit at that point, uh, seeing that there was so much buildup uh, to that point of where is he going to go? Because a lot of people really didn't know. A lot of people now in hindsight will tell you, oh, yeah, well, you know, George Jackson's going to USC the whole time. It was obvious. B.S. That dude had a lot of people guessing up until the very end. And that's what made it, I think, that much more uh, interesting. And, and quite frankly, I don't think people really felt – that kind of uh, drama and suspense uh, over an announcement since, 
I mean, I'd say Joe McKnight, but, you know, truth be told, Joe McKnight was assigned to commit to USC for months and months and months, almost a year. Yeah. And a lot of people knew it. And, and same with Nelson Aguilar, same with a lot of other guys. So I think you got to go back in the annals a bit to really go to where you see a, a recruitment where at the very end it's a top guy that you're just not really sure what he's going to do. He could kind of pull something out of his hat and maybe decide – you know, I'm going to go to Oregon, or I'm going to go to LSU, or, hey, I eliminated Tennessee, but guess what? Aha, I actually am going to Tennessee. I mean, there was always that potential with the Dory Jackson. There certainly was. And, uh, you know, now that he's, you know, signed with USC, Corey and Camarillo wanted to know, do you agree that a Dory Jackson is going to succeed at cornerback early and, and then get to the ball in his hands on returns instead of playing him on offense first? What do you think? I'd really like to see him play offense. I'd like to see him in this new scheme, and we're going to see what this new scheme really is uh, in spring ball to some extent, just in terms of you know, the use of formations, uh, the use of personnel. Is it really just going to be pro personnel but with no huddle, or is it going to be a little more spread? And now are they going to start to use the receivers in the run game a little more with you know, jet sweeps and some option-type plays? Uh, you know, if if they're going to do that, and you have a place for that slot receiver that can get involved with the run game, that can be involved with the screen game, then I like to see him play there because I don't think USC has a guy like that. USC has Nelson Aguilar, who's a tremendous um, kind of a, a, a slot slash flanker guy who's got enough speed where he can stretch the field, but he's not quite a guy that you would say, okay, he's a play-action, go-deep vertical receiver. He kind of has a little bit of both. He's a little bit of a tweener in that way, um, similar to you know Robert Woods and you know Marquis Lee who have come before him. Probably not quite as athletic as Marquis Lee, uh, but still a guy that I think maybe as a possession receiver might be actually a little more consistent next year. Um, and then you've got Darius Rogers, who's a pure possession receiver, um, not quite as big as a Mike Williams. So he's not quite as dominant, and I don't think his ceiling is quite as high, but he really plays very similar to Mike Williams, and he plays bigger than he is. I mean, he's only about 6'2", maybe, and probably about 200, he'd probably be about 210 pounds by the time he plays next year. Um, But a guy that really uses his body well, uses his hands well, runs good routes, has a very, really good awareness for the, the passing windows and kind of just, you know, kind of edging himself into an opening. Um, so you're going to have those kind of guys that are on the field. We're going to see what happens with Stephen Mitchell. We're going to see what happens with George Farmer. I think those are the guys that are, you know, the potential playmakers, the potential explosive athletes that you can put in the slot or that you can move around on the field, get them the ball in space, and they can kind of create. But they're coming away from knee injury, so you just don't necessarily know if they're going to have that same ability that they did coming out of high school. And George Farmer has been hurt a lot, so we don't even know if he's going to have the potential that he did just you know, as a freshman or a sophomore at USC, quite frankly. So that's where Dory Jackson kind of comes in on offense, and that's where you just like to see somebody there who can create, who has a little bit of that Percy Harvin, Reggie Bush ability uh, to make people miss, even when the play's broken down, do some of the things that Marquise Lee did. But I tell you, Adoree Jackson is better at doing those things than even Marquise Lee was. Marquise Lee was about as fast and tremendous athlete, but not necessarily a guy with the best balance or first step. He was not a short area quickness guy. Uh, Marquise is definitely more of a top-end speed guy. And while he had good awareness and could see the field and make people miss – that was not necessarily his forte. And you saw him lose yards sometimes as much as he would gain yards when he got in those situations where he had to make a guy miss uh, to make a play happen. So I think with Adoree Jackson, he is much better at that. He'll make a guy miss. He'll make two, three guys miss. And he will get upfield because he has enough speed to be able to make that play and get more yards. And that's what this offense might need. And so we're going to have to see. Was she, you know, she Johnson's the guy that might be able to do that. Um, you know, a, a, a Janie Harris is the guy that may be able to do that, but I don't know if they have quite the explosiveness as a Dory. So I, I kind of want to see what he could do on offense. Obviously, he could come in and play corner. 
that's a guy that's just good enough athlete that you can say, look, we're going to play press man. We're going to put a safety over the top. You take this guy. Don't worry about anything else. And as far as, you know, learning the game plan and processing, there's not a whole lot to that. That becomes more about technique than it does him understanding and comprehending the whole defensive game plan. All right. Uh, let's stick with uh, Corey. He had a couple offensive line questions, too. Uh, he wants to know, which of the freshman offensive linemen do you think is going to get a chance to start at, or get a chance at right tackle and center first? And do you think that Jordan Austin could switch to the interior defensive line or would someone like Dorton or Hill bulk up and try to play inside? I don't see Dorton or Hill bulking up enough to play in the interior. Um, Hill, there's a possibility, but man, that would be way down the line. He's got a lot of weight to gain. And I think with Dorton, way too much weight to gain, and I just don't think he has the mentality to be an interior lineman. Uh, with Jordan Austin, yeah, there's a possibility there. Um, I've never really seen him play a whole lot of defensive line. When I saw him play in person, he played sparingly on defense, and it was mostly in goal line situations. So you weren't really seeing him play um, you know, from a Pashwa standpoint or anything. It was just basically, hey, look at, you know, big body, get in there, stop the guy from getting into the touchdown you know, from a yard out type thing, and, and you're not really getting to see much from that standpoint. So, um, yeah, there's potential there, but I, I think if you see him in the interior, it's probably going to be on the offensive line. Uh, the guys that have the ability to play right tackle, obviously Damian Mama, that, that's the first guy. He's got to lose some weight. He's got to get himself, you know, trained up, uh, be able to have, especially if they're going to play an up-tempo type offense, um, he's going to have to have uh, a much more endurance and condition himself better to be able to play that spot. I think he's kind of the only guy that I see at the top um, just right off that, that has that potential to play right tackle or tackle just in general of this whole class. Um, Chris Brown is a guy that played off the tackle in high school. He has a little more height than the other guys that have been, you know, uh, signed in the 2014 class. And you're talking about Lobendon. You're talking about v, uh, Vianni Tomahavo. Um, at least he's a guy that's got that 6'5". Uh, he's not quite 6'6". Six, six. He's probably 6'4.5"-ish frame. But I don't know if he has the length in his arms to really play tackle. From what I was talking, really actually talking to Kenny DePalamalu when he was at uh, <laughs> high school before he was hired by UCLA as a running back coach, you know, I talked to him quite a bit about Chris Brown and the, the, the feeling was that his, his ceiling, his peak is probably better on the interior. He could be a great interior lineman, but in a pinch, maybe you could put him at right tackle. Um, so, and I kind of agree with that. Just watching him. I think that might be more of what you see with him. So you're looking at Damian mama. If he can get his conditioning up, if he can drop weight, I mean, we want to see him more like 335 than 375 and with Chris Brown, maybe just in terms of depth, he might be able to kind of fill uh, some depth purposes at right tackle and then maybe eventually move down and play on the interior. Uh, the guy who actually is the best blocker on the edge, the guy that hits, I mean, if you really had to play tomorrow and those were the offensive linemen that you had to play with, the guy that might end up actually probably being the best right here right now would be Toa Lobendon. Uh, I mean, he, he's got long enough arms, even though he's about only about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and he's so athletic and got great feet that he could probably play tackle better <laughs> than any of those guys right here right now. But, again, you're talking about what is his best position down the line. I still think center. I, I think he would be a great center. He could play guard. Um but, yeah, I mean, if we're just talking about the here and now, maybe he could play tackle. Um, I think at the end of the day, Mama's probably the guy that, out of the gates, they tried to get physically prepared enough that he can play offensive tackle. It might not happen right away. It might be a little bit like Andre Walker where, you know, took Andre basically a season. He could lose weight, then they bounced him out there. Um, but even Andre Walker, that's a guy that I think is naturally a guard just playing tackle for USC because USC doesn't have a lot of true offensive tackles on the roster. All right. Uh, let's see. That's offensive line. I think let's go. We have a voicemail question. Let's play that one for you, and we can kind of get your reaction. Here you go. Hey, Ryan, uh, JT from D.C., uh, sure hope you can get Lanny on uh, soon to analyze this year's recruit class, and I uh, was thinking maybe it would be uh, great if he could also 
briefly comment on some of the guys who got away this year who clearly have interest in USC and a mutual interest in the coaching staff, but due to uh, um, scholarship limitations, we didn't uh, fit them in. Guys like Warner and even Wadud and uh, uh, guys of that sort, uh, particularly you know guys who ended up uh, going to other Pac-12 schools that uh, in normal years with 25 rides we would have had in the class and would have loved to have. Um, guys like Ayanu, uh, uh, that defensive lineman, uh, et cetera. Uh, appreciate it. I'm looking forward to hearing what Lanny has to say. Well, I am not Lanny, so I can only speak <laughs> to the questions about who got away. And um, obviously Fred Warner is the first guy that comes to mind, uh, 6'3", 215-pound linebacker from San Marcos who – I mean, he really liked USC. He was a USC fan. I think if um, the planets were aligned and everything were to come together, he would have been able to officially visit USC January 17th instead of having that visit pushed back a couple weeks. He would have been a guy that would have been in for USC. I, I think that's one that, uh, unfortunately, because of the lack of rides, there just was no place with him. And he was kind of an indicator that USC was pretty confident in Juju and Adoree and Damian Mama and Lamont Simmons even uh, coming in uh, for, for signing day. Um, I think with Wadu, different story. Uh, you know, he obviously went back and forth with a few different commitments, was originally committed to ASU, then turned around and committed to Cal way too early. That was silly. I don't know why he did that. Um, and then eventually it became a USC-UCLA battle. Um, you know, he, he, he picked UCLA and picked UCLA before the coaching change with USC. And I think that was obviously a big deal. I mean, you had USC going through various coaching staffs and, you know, a lot of different rumors as to who the coach was going to be, what kind of defense were they going to run. I think he just felt more comfortable with UCLA and the UCLA staff. And, and first and foremost, his ability to play safety for them and not play corner. He was very fearful that he was going to get pushed to corner and he knows as well as I know <laughs> he can't play corner. He's not going to be a guy that's going to play corner. He's a four seven guy. I mean, he's just not fast enough. Uh, he will be a really good safety though, because even though he's small, he's about five nine. Uh, he's just got great awareness, and he's just one of those guys, kind of like a Kevin Ellison, that you know, not a great time guy, uh, not a great you know physical specimen, but a guy that just can see the field and has great instincts and can make plays. Uh, based on that. And so I think he felt more comfortable with UCLA. The funny thing is, once Sarkeesian and the Washington staff have basically been put in place, uh, USC stopped recruiting them all together. Um, they didn't offer him at Washington. Sarkeesian and those guys really wanted cornerbacks. They wanted guys that even if they were safeties could possibly play corner, guys that could you know have man coverage uh, that, that wouldn't necessarily be a liability because of their speed. And so Wadu was completely off the table. It was never even a question of whether they were going to recruit him again or not. Uh, they kind of had moved on from that point. Um, Josh Frazier is the guy that comes up a lot, the big uh, 6'3", 320-pound defensive tackle from Springdale, Arkansas, who, I mean, he loved USC. He was a huge USC fan, a guy that you know we had spoken to in person at a, at a couple events and, and just glowed about USC, knew a lot about USC. Um, that, at the end of the day, just, you know, he was committed to Alabama, and, and USC I just don't think had enough of an in with the people around him to get him on that official visit. And, you know, he kept getting put off. He had lost his wallet in San Antonio at the Army All-American game, and then he didn't have ID to be able to get on a plane. So that became a whole issue. And he was literally on his way to, U, uh, to, to USC on an official visit. It was like Thursday, and he calls the coaches and says, uh, Coach, I don't know if I can get on a plane because I don't have ID. And okay, that's going to be a problem, you know. Nowadays, they just don't let you on plane just because you know you say, "Hey, just trust me, I'm this guy." Uh, so that became a, an, another issue, and at the end of the day, it just didn't happen. And I think uh, even if it would have happened, I mean, who who is not a part of the class? I mean, who do you bump when you only have four rides at that point, and you've got Lamont Simmons, uh, Damian Mama, uh, <laughs> Dory Jackson, and Juju Smith are the guys that are left on the board. So. It would have just made things that much harder. I don't know if USC could have done anything differently down the stretch, even if a guy like Josh Frazier ends up uh, wanting to commit. And then finally you had Charles Nelson, who USC basically had to say, you know what, 
you can't commit. I mean, he came in on a special visit, loved USC. He would have committed that week if uh, there would have been a scholarship open. And it, it really became him and the Dory Jackson. That was really the plan to do with Dory Jackson. And, again, a couple weeks before signing day, I think USC felt pretty confident. They had great communication with the Dory Jackson. They knew what the new moving parts were. Um, and, and it was one of those things that, you know, we, if they would have got Charles Nelson, they wouldn't have had room for Dory Jackson or they wouldn't have had room for Juju Smith or somebody else down the line. And, obviously, I think it worked out the best for USC. So those are the guys that if they would have had 22, 24 rides or something, I think those guys, you know, sparing Josh Frazier because that was a different deal with him being committed to Alabama and the change in coaching staffs, uh, maybe if Ed Erdron was still coach, you know, he had a connection there with Josh Frazier that maybe that would have happened a little sooner. He would have gotten, you know, the official visit a little sooner. But, you know, Josh Frazier was not recruited at all by Washington. So there was no relationship there. There was no connection. So that was what made it that much harder to be able to get him in on a last-minute visit. All right. Uh, thanks for that one, J.D. He, he has a lot of uh, good recruiting questions for us, so we appreciate that one. Um, here's a quick one. I can answer this one from Mark. Uh, he goes, I know this might sound stupid, but if a football player transfers post-graduation and enters graduate school with an academic scholarship, can he play football or does it count against the NCAA scholarship limit? So um, I think there's a couple things here. If you're a transfer, if you're a, if you're graduating as a football player, like Max Wittick is graduating, he's going to play somewhere else. He will count as an initial scholarship. Uh, whatever school he goes to. So uh, even though you've graduated, when you transfer, just like a regular transfer, you count as an initial scholarship. Now, academic scholarship for graduate school, I, there's, I think there's some gray area there. If you were a recruited athlete and you play, then I think you can't be on an academic scholarship. You have to count. So if he would have had to have been like a former walk-on that wasn't recruited and that was given a scholarship. I, there's some complication there, but Mark, I don't think there's really a way. If it, if you're picking up a graduate from some other school and he comes to your school, he actually counts as an initial scholarship. So that's one of the, what used to be 15 for USC and now is uh, 25. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Gerard. No, I agree with that. I, I think um, the only loophole would be the academic scholarship. And as you said, if a player has already played on an athletic scholarship, I don't believe you can, you know, uh, get an academic academic scholarship unless there's something that states that because you're at a different school, all of a sudden that changes. And I'm, that might be fine print somewhere that because you got an academic scholarship at a different school than you had an athletic scholarship, maybe that changes something. I sort of doubt it. Yeah, it doesn't seem so. I mean, there's people every week. We get people every day on Twitter trying to find <laughs> loopholes, and uh, luckily you don't have to worry about that too much longer because the next class can be 25. Speaking of that, David and Yorba Linda had a question. He said, "I'm not trying to get too far ahead. However, what is the scholarship math math post these criminal sanctions? Not well. I guess he's calling the sanctions criminal, not." that USC had criminal behavior. I think that's what he's talking about. Okay, that the NCAA was criminal in giving the sanctions. I, we, I think we would agree with that. Uh, but yeah. what is the maximum USC can sign up until next year? Are we still limited to 25, even if we are below the max number of scholarship players? He's talking about 85. And can we scholarship some walk-ons to get back up? What is the math next year? Well, the first question uh, that, that can be answered very easily is, yes, they can offer walk-ons. Um, scholarships to help kind of push you closer to the 85. Obviously, it's not the true yeah. scholarship 85, you know, because that's, you know, some walk-ons there that you're kind of, you know, padding those numbers a yeah. little bit. Um, but uh, That's not adding new scholarship and, players to the team. That's just making guys that were already on the team on a scholarship. So I do, people ask that a lot, but I don't see the benefit I mean, it's nice for the player to get a to get a scholarship if you're a walk-on, but you're not helping. If you're, I think he's coming for the point of how does I, how do I help USC? We need some walk-ons to give them scholarships. Well, those guys walk-ons were already on the team, and if they weren't on the team, they have to be on the team for two years to usually get a scholarship because if otherwise they would count as an initial scholarship. So usually you're not giving. So this year there's a good chance that a, a, a Ryan Dillard or a Nathan Gertler who have been around for a while can get a scholarship because they've already been in the program two, at least two years and then they don't count as initial scholarship. But yeah, there's, 
you might get the number up. It might get up to 85 by doing that, but you're not adding those extra players to the program is what they're trying to do. Exactly, exactly. And that, you know, even in the Pete Carroll days, there would always be a couple scholarships left over after signing day that would end up going to walk-ons, usually after spring ball. Sometimes it would be left until fall camp. Uh, but, you know, that was just because you like to have that buffer of, hey, you know, it's signing day. We got a couple scholarships that put them on our back pocket just in case there's some big time guy that at the last minute, like, you know, Marvin Austin or something that says, Oh, you know, I really want to go to USC and we have that right available. Obviously the past few years, USC has not had that luxury of having a couple of scholarships in their back pocket in case something like that happened at the end of the day, last hour, you know, of, of, of signing day. So the, the only positive that I can see here is that obviously Knowing that USC is still going to be a ways from 85, um, you know, we're not just talking like two or three scholarships. We're talking the next two years, probably, you know, five, maybe seven, ten. I mean, it just depends on who's going to leave early as juniors and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if they have any other transfers that, you know, you can't really recruit through the recruiting process. Um, you do have that kind of that, uh, that carrot that dangles a little bit for kids um, and I'll mention a guy specifically like Devontae Nunnery. Uh, Devontae Nunnery is a, is a pretty darn good cornerback prospect from St. Bonaventure, who is a teammate of Bryce Dixon. And that's a kid that, you know, he, he might have had some potential to go other places and get a scholarship. And because he knows, you know, in USC, go there a couple years, he's going to pay his tuition, um, you know, he's going to be able to get some financial aid and some other things, so it's not going to necessarily hit him as hard as, you know, maybe a regular student, uh, but go through that process for a couple years, there's probably still going to be a scholarship there available for him. And so you might get a better brand of walk-on player uh, over the next couple of years. And I think USC actually has, even in the past few years, just with walk-ons. I think guys like Ryan Dillard, they've had, you know, a handful of guys that have come through the program that have been guys that have had scholarship other places and they still decided to walk on at USC, seeing the potential that they could get a scholarship because of the numbers. All right. Let's see. Next question. Why don't we go to Melvin? Um, is there any high school kid that is already a must-get, quote-unquote, for 2015? For example, Iman Marshall from Long Beach Poly or Cameron Smith? Well, that's a good example, Iman Marshall. <laughs> I think uh, I would probably start at him. Um, you know, the, uh, he's probably about 6'1", 6'2", 190-pound uh, quarterback from Long Beach Poly and a kid that uh, has been on the radar for a long time. And uh, a really good, solid kid, though. You know, I, it's funny because you look at the recruiting process and you always have those kids that are early on in the process that are sometimes freshmen, sophomores, that seems like they've been recruits for 10 years. You know, their names have been out there for so long. You know, Dylan Baxter, those type of guys. And with Amon Marshall, he's just played the process so well. It's kind of been very Matt Barkley-esque in terms of just – you know, talks to the media, but definitely, you know, takes everything in moderation, uh, isn't out there, you know, saying crazy things, isn't, you know, committing to other schools and doing all this kind of stuff. He's taking the process step by step, um, very methodically. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of my hat's off to his family just for being able to temper that and control it. Because, I mean, he had offers from USC and UCLA. He was coming out of his freshman year. I mean, he was already a guy that was on the map. Um, but obviously for USC, that's a, that's a number one guy that you kind of have to lock down a corner. A lot of people look at him size-wise and think, oh, this is a kid that's going to move to safety. But I think corner is really his position. Some guys just play better in that box of a corner where you have to be on that guy or that zone, and it's really more of that, uh, that just that, that close – uh, kind of, it's kind of CQC, kind of close quarter combat, uh, whereas opposed to you're playing safety, you're kind of just out there in the open. And it's just a different skill set. And he's really a good, good cornerback. And I think despite his size being more as a safety, I think that's where his best position is. And you can never, never, uh, you know, underestimate the value of a guy that you can put on an island and just lock down one side of the field. And he's kind of that guy. So uh, that's a that's a big time guy to kind of start with. I think Rasheem Green is going to be a, a big time guy. He's a guy right now that's 
kind of in the size of maybe a strong side defensive end, but probably eventually moved down to being more of a three-technique defensive tackle. I think he's a must-get just because defensive linemen, quality defensive linemen, especially on the West Coast, are hard to get. And USC has struck out on a lot of guys here in the past couple of years. I mean, we talk about the, the recruiting prowess of Ed Ergeron, but USC's had a lot of decommitments during the process of the last few recruiting cycles with defensive linemen. You know, they lost out on guys like Ellis McCarthy. They lost out on guys like Eddie Vanderdose. And they didn't recruit a guy like Kenny Clark. And all those guys are at UCLA now. And if you're going to have a good defense, you've got to have a deep rotation of defensive linemen, especially if your offense on the other side of the ball is going to be running no huddle. You're going to have to have some rotation with those guys to substitute in and out. So I think with the defensive line, Machine Green is the best the best right now on the West Coast. He's one of the best nationally. He's about 265, 270 right now. But I see him being a guy that's be 285, 290, but I think by the time he gets into his, you know, his, his end of his freshman, into his sophomore year, uh, very similar uh, in that respect to you know, maybe a Leonard Williams. Um, so I think he's a, you know, a, a kind of a must-get guy. The other guy that kind of jumps into mind is, is Khalil McKenzie, a little farther off, and, and he's going to be a little harder get because I think you know he has some ties to some other programs and some other places across the country. He's the uh, 6'3", 310-pound defensive tackle from De La Salle High School. And um, you know, Dad's got some ties to Tennessee. His sister right now is at Duke. He's going to visit Duke here in the next couple weeks. He's going to go on nine unofficial visits during the spring. And so that's, you know, telling you that the kid is really going to look around. But I think as an interior guy, you know, USC's really early on circling three guys that they'd like to be able to get, uh, you know, Khalil McKenzie being one, Rasheem Green being another, and, uh, you know, the, the other big guy that this staff at Washington had committed is Jacob Daniels, 6'5", 290, 300-pound defensive tackle from uh, Clovis North High School, who we saw play in person, who's you know kind of a defensive end if you're playing a three-man front, maybe more of a defensive tackle like Rasheem Green if you're playing a, a four-man front. And so that, you know, the defensive linemen, because you have a couple of them here on the West Coast that are top-end guys, really high-quality guys, uh, physically able to come in and, and probably make an impact as true freshmen, that's always very important. And I think you've got a corner that's a guy that's a feature franchise-type corner, and then you've got some really good defensive linemen. That's kind of where it begins for me with the 2015 class. There's obviously there's some good receivers, and running back is kind of a, a shallow position right now. haven't seen a lot of depth of talent, probably the worst um, in terms of talent, or at least in terms of the talent pool in the 2015 class, at least on the West Coast, um, that's going to be a position that, you know, USC probably wants to take at least one guy. We're going to have to see if they can kind of cultivate uh, somebody out of the, the sticks, you know, right now, because we're not seeing that guy, that, that speed back guy that can be kind of uh, that featured back uh, to go along with some of the guys that they've got that are a little bigger and stronger, like Justin Davis and Ty Isaac, um, you know, and, and obviously Buck Allen's going to be on his way out here. So uh, they're going to have to kind of replace that. And probably with the speed back, just that guy just doesn't jump out of, uh, you know, the class right now. So uh, I would say, you know, they, they, they've actually taken a good step forward with Ricky Town. Obviously you get your quarterback, you know, the big time five-star guy, uh, you're able to get him. They got another guy on the other side uh, of the, the country with David Sills. We're going to see how that develops if he stays committed or if they go after somebody maybe to complement Ricky Town as a, as a more athletic quarterback and, and go after somebody that uh, you know maybe is that dual threat type guy um, where you have Town and that dual threat type guy uh, to be able to maybe run you know some more spread option type stuff. So we're going to see how that develops. You know with with this system and, you know, with Jalen Green and how much of an impact he can make in the system, I think that's all kind of wait and see. But as far as those musket guys, yeah, I'm looking at the defensive side of the ball. And uh, if, you can, uh, if you can stop the run and rush the passer and lock down one of the team's best receivers on the other side, that's, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's where you want to start. And uh, I think that's uh, where USC probably, you know, their priority is right now too. All right. Uh, and by the way, the the caller that mentioned uh, Landon Julius, so he's he didn't do this last year. He used to do come in and, and uh, he's a former scout and uh, college football coach, and is, you know really knows college football and, and high school football. Um, we've had him on podcast before, and he kind of breaks down the recruiting classes. We've done some stories with him and stuff. His health has certainly not been uh, what it was, and uh, we sort of lost contact with him. We've been trying to get a hold of him. And we haven't been able to. So if we can, we would love to do that. But, you know, Landy has, he's certainly had some 
health problems. I'm not sure if he's able to keep up with things. So we wish him the best. And if we can get him on, uh, I'd love to do that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're trying. So just wanted to let people know. And uh, one last thing for you, Gerard, from Peter in Fullerton. Um, this kind of interesting question. We can kind of debate it or whatever, talk about it. The great recruiting class seems to remove one of the key arguments for Coach O as the head coach. Do you think that Coach Orgeron, well, how do you think the Coach Orgeron's recruiting class would have compared to this one? I already, I already know Dan would say Coach O would have kept more of the players from leaving early, but what do you think about this recruiting class specifically? And that's from Peter and Fullerton. Wow, that, that's, that's tough, you know, to project to hypotheticals. I mean, USC definitely had a lot of momentum uh, recruiting with Coach O. Uh, some of that momentum was just created by the fact that they gave out a lot of offers and they started hitting the ground locally much harder than they did when Lane Kiffin was head coach. And so that kind of that 180, I think, impressed a lot of people. You know, would they have been able to close out on Damian Lama, Juju Smith, and Adore Jackson uh, coming into signing day? I think with Juju Smith and, and Damian Mama, they still get both of those guys. Um, I think, you know, Juju Smith really liked uh, Coach Erdron. He liked the, the, the energy uh, that he brought to the table. Um, obviously, you have to think that USC is still able to beat Fresno State. Um, you know, if they would have lost in the Las Vegas Bowl, that might have created some issues too, you know. And so we assume that they would have still beat Fresno State and still had some type of momentum coming out of the bowl game. And so I think they would have done very well. Um, it's just hard to know, you know, would there have been guys that they wouldn't have taken? Uh, because you've got to remember here, you know, USC closed out on those four spots on signing day, and they only had four spots available. Now they had four spots available because guys like Austin Malata and Shea Fields were no longer a part of the class. Jordan Poland, there's a few guys that decommitted. Now, would have Ed Ergeron had those guys decommitted, even though he was on staff when those guys were offered originally? That's a question mark. Do they, do they have room for Juju Smith because Shea Fields is still a commit? Or does he turn around and pull the ride of Shea Fields, which there's really not the same type of excuses as, as Steve Sarkeesian had. Steve Sarkeesian comes in with a new system. He never offered Shea Fields. They didn't recruit Shea Fields, quite frankly, in Washington. They didn't recruit a couple guys uh, for, for when they were in Washington. So that was kind of a built-in excuse. Look, at, we're going in a different direction. You know, if you still want to come here, that's fine. But, you know, understand that you're not necessarily our first pick. And so you had those guys decommit and it opened up room for other guys. So the debate probably lies there. Is there even enough room with the way Ed Ergeron was recruiting in order to bring all those guys in that they got? Um, do you think I, – what we saw with Orgeron when he took over, and I think it was interesting that when he took over, there was kind of a shift in, to the local guys, you know, you mentioned, and uh, a lot of those guys. And some got dropped. So I think, you know, you might have seen like a Shea Fields or someone in the class still. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I just got the feeling that he was trying to fix – I think there was a problem with the way the recruiting class was going. And Orgeron came in, and he seemed like he was trying to fix that problem. And then Steve Sarkeesian came in and had a kind of a different fix, and I think still used some of the tactics that Orgeron was doing, but then kind of he you know changed it a little bit, modified it a little bit to his own way. And to his credit, I think it came out well. I think both guys would have come out and signed really good classes, but I'm not sure. I think they would have they went about it, I guess, a little bit differently. You could say. I would say. I think Sarkeesian ends up getting the better class, specifically from a star standpoint, because of the decommits that he had and the fact that those guys were replaced almost immediately by Rasheed Johnson and Jonathan Lockett, specifically. And I don't think USC necessarily would have gone after Rasheed Johnson. And I think if Sark was still at Washington, Rasheed Johnson would probably still end up at Washington with Lockett, he's a big USC fan, but I just didn't get the feeling that Clancy Pendergast was going to ever pull the trigger on him. Saw him play in person. He had a monster game against Long Beach Poly. I mean, he really kind of out-jujued Juju in that game and was doing everything. Running back kicks, playing receiver, playing cornerback, locked down his guy. He did everything in that game that you could possibly do to get an offer. No offer still came. So that kind of tells me he's not on the board. So you're probably keeping a guy – like Shea Fields, who's you know not rated as high, 
Um, maybe even, you know, somebody else that, that, you know, I think Austin Malata was a guy that probably wasn't going to end up in the class, mainly because his SAT scores were just pretty low. And so that was always a red flag for USC. And with the numbers that they have, and they have to hit it right, you can't take a lot of waivers on guys academically. So I think he probably would have been out regardless. Um, you know, Jordan Poland, that remains kind of a question as to whether he would have stayed in the class uh, if Ed Erdogan would have been there. So I, I think – the guys that uh, kind of made up the difference there with Sark being able to come in and guys he had committed from Washington that he brought over, those guys were all pretty highly rated guys, probably outside of Don Hill. Don Hill was the only guy that uh, really didn't, not a, not a highly rated guy, but a guy that you kind of needed to have there early in the mid-year class because you didn't know what was going to happen with Claude Palin. And, you know, hindsight, we talked about this already. Hindsight is 2020, and everybody can say, well, you know what, you should have just, you know, maybe not brought in Don Hill and just gone and, and waited on Palin, and then you would have had another ride at the end to play with uh, without Don Hill part of the class. And obviously, Erdogan wouldn't have brought in Don Hill. He didn't have any they, – they didn't, weren't even recruiting Don Hill at that point. Um, but then you're putting all your cards on, uh, on, on Claude Palin, who, you know, at that point in time, it was looking like maybe he wasn't going to get in. Um, and then you have to debate, does Claude Palin go to USC because he was still being recruited by Washington and Tosh Lapoy? And Washington and Tosh Lapoy were, were probably his leader at that point. And if they stay at Washington, maybe he goes to Washington. Maybe we never hear anything about Tosh Lapoy and all this, uh, you know, under-the-table money and coffee cups type stuff that went on with the L.A. Times piece that has now been brushed away by the NCAA, and they say there's no infraction. So who knows? There's a lot of hypothetical there to, to, to kind of talk about and debate. All right. Well, we'll have plenty of time to debate with uh, signing day 2015, a little under a year away, <laughs> 51 weeks from today, I guess you could say. So, well, good stuff, Gerard, and uh, glad we could do a podcast. I didn't tell you. I, I, I was on Twitter. I, I tweeted out when we started the podcast. We were recording one, and someone asked me if it was going to be free, and I said, sure. We'll make this one free. So hopefully you didn't share any like super war room stuff in there, Gerard. But we're gonna we're gonna put this one out for the masses. Yeah. Well, thanks for that heads up after <laughs> the fact. Oh, it was good. We're just <laughs> recapping things. So I just spilled all the top secrets to everybody <laughs> in Twitter world. So yeah. Nice. All right. Well, thanks again, Gerard, for coming on the show. And uh, we'll uh, we'll make sure we do some more of these through the off season. I know we got some camps and stuff coming up. March first, uh, rivals camp in. Southern California and March 2nd, there's a rivals camp in Northern California. So we'll get you some information on that. And everyone else, thanks very much for tuning in to the Trojan Blast Recruiting Podcast. We'll talk to you next time.